Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. On this last episode of 2022, we look back at the year as we look ahead to the new year, a year profoundly shaped by Russia's illegal war on Ukraine, a war that prompted America to donate $50 billion in assistance to Kiev, and yesterday brought Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to Washington for a meeting with President Biden and a historic and powerful address to a joint session of the U.S. Congress. This as lawmakers continue to work to avert a government shutdown with a $1.7 trillion appropriations measure on the heels of an $858 billion National Defense Authorization Act. As Zelensky was making a whirlwind visit to Washington, his first trip outside Ukraine since the start of the war, Russia continued to pound the country's infrastructure, leaving, as their leader so eloquently said in his address, Ukrainians in the dark to celebrate Christmas by candlelight, not because it's romantic, but because of the brutality of their adversary. Today, we're going to take a look at this and other major stories of the year as we prepare for a two-week break for the holidays. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are our core team, Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, uh, a must uh, listen for anybody who's interested in the Atlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back to the program. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of both the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum were sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Please check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and The Downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, uh, welcome back for this last program uh, of the year as we look back to look ahead uh, into the future. And obviously, the biggest story is Russia. Uh, but in the meantime, we're trying to avert uh, a government shutdown with uh, either 1.7 or 1.8 trillion, uh, depending on who uh, you talk to. Uh, Omnibus, Michael, uh, you are living this drama uh, on a literally minute by minute uh, basis. Uh, where are we? And is a government shutdown ultimately going to be uh, averted uh, for the holidays? I do believe a government shutdown will be averted before the holidays, but we're not there yet. And this has not been without a tremendous amount of drama this week. So we spoke last week about a framework being released on the Omnibus, and we all expected omnibus text to be released on Monday. However, drama ensued because there was a contentious dispute between both the Maryland and Virginia Democrats about the future location of the FBI headquarters. And because of that dispute, that was delaying the release of the omnibus. So they settled on compromise language that would direct the federal government to meet with representatives from both sides to hear their ideas before the government made a final determination as to where the FBI headquarters would be located. So then the omnibus was released in the wee hours of Tuesday morning, and it really contained what we expected. I mean, the top line is uh, 1.7 trillion. Uh, the defense number is 858 billion, which is um, 
uh, $45 billion higher than the president's budget request, again, as expected. Uh, the Ukraine aid number is much higher uh, than the president's request. Uh, the president's request was $38 billion. Uh, total Ukraine aid in the bill is going to be $44.9 uh, billion. Um, there's also a provision in there that would uh, bar the download of TikTok onto government uh, devices. Uh, the Electoral Count Act was included in the omnibus, but a lot of things were left out. Uh, the child tax credit did not make it. Uh, more COVID relief did not make it. Safe banking did not make it. Uh, mansions permitting reform did not make it. And you know the Afghan Adjustment Act did not make it. And there was a really huge push by uh, you know veterans organizations, uh, more than 30 prominent military leaders, including uh, former chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, wrote congressional leaders asking for this to be included. You know this legislation, you know, would have given permanent legal. Uh, resident status to uh, the uh, Afghans, more than 70,000 that were uh, evacuated from Kabul. But because of a lot of the anti-immigration rhetoric from the Republicans, this was not able to make it. However, Senator Shaheen at the last minute was able at least to secure an extension of the Afghan special immigrant visa program uh, until the end of 2024. So this, un you know, this uncertainty is going to weigh over, the, uh, over their heads for a while longer. And it depends on what the next administration you know, is going to do about it. Um, Just to interrupt briefly, right, in the R&D tax credit uh, for industry also didn't make it, right? I mean, something that both Aerospace Industries Association, NDIA, uh, PSC, and all the other uh, associations and industry has been lobbying for. Correct. That, that, exactly right. Uh, you know, and that's part of the problem with these year-end legislations. That's what a lot of people are complaining about is that there's so much that they try to put on these instead of passing those freestanding bills, which really mucks up the works. And there's, again, a call today you know, from uh, Steny Hoyer, who will be stepping down you know, from leadership from the Democrats, but returning to the Appropriations Committee for a return to regular order. Uh, I, I hope he can do it, uh, but he's going to need cooperation, not just from Republicans, but cooperation you know, from the Senate as well. But you know, the drama continued this week you know, with the omnibus because uh, the, the, you know, many House Republicans, including Kevin McCarthy, were leaning hard on the Senate Republicans not to support uh, the omnibus. Uh, 31 uh, House Republicans sent a threatening letter uh, to their Senate colleagues uh, referring to the omnibus as a full-scale assault on the American people uh, that empowers the Biden administration's tyrannical attack on liberty and security of our constituents and must be stopped with any fiber of our political fortitude. I mean, just really crazy talk. And uh, at the end of the letter, uh, they actually threatened their Republican colleagues, saying that we will oppose and whip opposition to any legislative priority those senators who vote for its passage, including the Republican leader. And they will do anything in their power to thwart even the smallest legislative and policy efforts of those senators. Um, so it's this is a preview. Real, the crazy real compromising language, real exactly. compromising language. <laughs> right. And, and again, this is a preview into what we're going to be facing next year with Republicans in control. There's a lot of concern as to are we going to be able to get appropriations bills done and an NDAA done? Uh, Kevin McCarthy actually went uh, over to the Senate yesterday to talk to the Senate Republicans about opposing uh, this legislation. Uh, that uh, did not go very well. Uh, so as of yesterday, we expected a vote on the omnibus uh, after the Zelensky speech last night, and it did not happen. Uh, right. uh, so th at the um, late last night, there was a dispute over an amendment that Senator Lee uh, was offering to the omnibus that uh, would extend the authorities under uh, Title 42, which again is a provision that allows us to keep uh, migrants out of the country during a pandemic. And uh, Lee wanted a uh, 51-vote threshold, and the Democrats wanted to give him a 60-vote threshold. And the reason the Democrats wanted the 60-vote threshold is they know several Democrats will vote for Lee's amendment. And if Lee's amendment passed, it would tank the omnibus when it got to the House. So as of last night, 
uh, there was talk about a CR into February, uh, and it very, people were very, very discouraged. However, early this morning, uh, Senator Cinema uh, from Arizona and Senator Testa from Montana were able to come up with a compromise where they would uh, allow Lee to get a vote on his amendment, but they would offer their own alternative that the Democrats would vote for, which would give lots of money for border security uh, and immigration enforcement and would extend Title 42 until a plan is in place to manage the influx of, of migrants coming across the U.S. border. So now with that compromise in place, they're in the process, as we tape this podcast now, voting on a series of 18 amendments. We do expect final passage of the Omni uh, later this afternoon uh, or early this evening in the Senate, and the House will take it up immediately uh, so they can get out of town and go home for Christmas. So what does this portend for uh, the coming year, right? I mean, this uh, there is every reason in the world to try to avoid uh, drama, uh, to try to do this. I mean, obviously, there was a hope that we would be able to uh, do debt. I mean, right. I mean, we've been talking about all of this stuff for months. So it's not like this bus sort of arrived at this. You know what I mean? I mean, we've seen this headlight, these headlights coming at us for a long time. Um how, how did it, with the uncompromising uh, language and rhetoric uh, that's coming out of uh, the Republican uh, leadership, right? I mean, on uh, Vladimir Zelensky's uh, great day, a day to show uh, unity and bipartisanship, you know, the, the incoming Speaker of the House was saying, we're not giving Ukraine a blank check, and nobody's asking for Ukraine to be given a blank check uh, on either side of the Atlantic. Um, you know, what, what does this tell us? about what we can even assume in the you know, next couple of weeks and months, much less uh, deeper into the year? Well, look, I think um, after tomorrow, uh, things will quiet down as we as the House and Senate adjourn and we go, go home for the holidays and the president gets a chance to not only sign the Omni, but he gets a chance to sign the NDAA. Um, but Congress returns very early next year. I mean, they're back in session on, on the 3rd and there'll be a lot of drama on the 3rd around the vote for Speaker for McCarthy because right now there are several... Uh, holdouts. Uh, and Kevin can only afford to lose four votes. And there are about five or six that are firm. And they think that they have additional numbers, which is why you saw McCarthy say what he said again yesterday, that he's not giving a blank check. Well, again, with McCarthy, you got to read between the lines. McCarthy does support continued aid to Ukraine. Um, he's trying to mince his words very carefully to maintain support on the right. Uh, I think that the aid to Ukraine next year will be looked at in terms of the military aid and also the non-military aid. And I think with the non-military aid is where more of the problem is going to be. But look, I don't want to end the year on, on a dark note, but this is a preview into how difficult things are going to be for the next two years. And you know, the question is, you know, are the Republicans willing to govern? And you have a large swath of Republicans that just don't seem that they want to govern. They just want to fight with Democrats and they don't want to work with Democrats. And with a five seat majority in the House and the Senate controlled by Democrats and the White House controlled by Democrats, you have to work with Democrats to pass the bills that we consider must pass and perform the basic functioning of government, which includes appropriations bills and the NDAA at a, at a minimum. And many of us are talking now, we are fearful as to whether this can uh, get done next year. Um, and uh, I should say, right, I mean, and I don't mean this in a partisan fashion, but it's amazing actually how much legislation has passed uh, in the last two years, uh, including bipartisan pieces of legislation, right? I mean, we have sort of achieved somewhat normalcy uh, uh, over over the past couple of years. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree to a point. Look, I think, you know, the, the, obviously the bipartisan infrastructure bill um, was passed and we saw some gun legislation that was bipartisan that passed. Uh, these things were not without hiccups. I mean, I think the bipartisan the marriage measure, bill, the marriage measure passed. Uh, yeah, the marriage measure. Bipartisan support. It did. Right. I mean, it got less Republican support the second time around than it did on the first. 
because uh, there was some backlash to some of those members back home, which was extremely disappointing. But I think the bipartisan infrastructure bill would have gotten tremendous bipartisan support in the House had it been taken up immediately. Because remember, that bill did languish for over 80 days in the House because the president, the progressives tried to link it um, to the Build Back Better legislation, which in the end was unsuccessful. So, but uh, again, like I, I agree, I think a lot of legislation was passed. And uh, I think that, you know, that next year we not only have the issue of passing appropriations bills to fund the government, but, but we will have the debt ceiling uh, come up in the third quarter. And that should make people very nervous uh, about, you know, because we saw what happened last time where our credit was downgraded. And again, if we are going to take the China threat seriously and the new speaker wants to have the Select Committee on China and he wants it to be bipartisan, we cannot be serious about China if we're going to continue to pass CRs and we're going to threaten to crash our own economy. And I think that a lot of Republican members, as well as Democrats, have to focus on that and put the spotlight on that. Um, uh, we've um, got a lot of show, uh, and uh, uh, certainly all this is important. But really quick, how does January 6th? Uh, January 6th commission is wrapping up its work. It's uh, referring uh, the former president to face criminal charges uh, for uh, inciting an insurrection uh, and other serious charges. Uh, and then uh, the release of his highly problematic taxes, uh, along with the revelation that the IRS didn't do what it's done for every other president, Obama, Biden, and others, uh, which is to monitor their taxes while uh, they're in office. What does all this mean? And especially what does it mean going forward? And Right. I mean, Republicans are going to be, you know, investigating Hunter Biden. They're going to be investigating Nancy Pelosi, apparently, because apparently it was her fault uh, what happened on January 6th. Um, Right. I mean, walk us through what this commission's referrals, uh, its body of work, and what does it mean going forward when Republicans are in charge of the House? Well, look, I think, unfortunately, I think the work of the committee at the end of the day is being overshadowed by everything else that's happening in the news this week, not just the omnibus, but also President Zelensky's surprise visit uh, to the United States yesterday. So, and yesterday was the day that the, the Genesis Committee released its official report and all the all supporting documents. So I think, look, I, I'm glad to see that they made the criminal referrals that they did, because in the end, it shows that the committee itself had, fun, had a purpose. Um, obviously, it's up to the Justice Department what they decide to do. And we know they're already investigating this. So, uh, you know, maybe they can make good use of some of the uh, investigative material that they're getting from the January 6th Commission. And all this now will, will take place behind the scenes. Uh, the Justice Department you know, is going to go on and, and do its work. I think we will see a push next year to defund uh, the special prosecutor you know, from the Republicans. Uh, but there is extra money. Uh, in the Omni uh, that's going to pass for the Justice Department and these investigations. Uh, And look, I think we are going to see the Republicans spin their wheels on a lot of investigations next year, uh, not just on January 6th and and Pelosi, but also the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, the origins of COVID, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop. And I think Republicans are going to have to figure out that they think that's a winning formula for them uh, to win win re-election or gain seats and gain the White House and the Senate in 24. I would argue no, uh, because I think that's why the Republicans did so poorly uh, in this last election in 22, they expected to win 30 seats and they won nine. And I think they were running on the fact that, hey, we're bad, but those guys are worse. Right. And, uh, you know, the inflation's bad. Crime is bad. You know, borders bad. But they really weren't offering any solutions or any alternatives. And the Republicans are going to have to figure out what it is they stand for. And they're going to have to offer a positive agenda for America. 
Dove, uh, I want to go to, uh, go to you. Um, obviously, Russia was uh, the biggest story uh, of the year by a, uh, an order of magnitude. And indeed, uh, President Zelensky's uh, visit, while very important uh, and timed uh, importantly, I think, right? The first visit outside the United States is to uh, his first visit outside Ukraine is to the United States to thank the American president, who's been so instrumental uh, in uh, marshalling global support for uh, the country, not just in $50 billion and economic, uh, as well as military assistance, uh, which he acknowledged, without which, uh, you know, Ukraine would not have been able to make the gains that it's made. Uh, but his timing was also politically very shrewd to make the case to the American people at a, at a time when the body is, is going to change and you have Republican lawmakers trying to stop uh, the aid without which Ukraine uh, will, will not be uh, successful. How, how has Russia's war on Ukraine changed the entire political dynamic and calculus in Washington, because whatever criticism you want to make of the administration, right, for some, uh, they're moving too slowly, as we've discussed on this program. Uh, but for others, it, the administration has prudently been moving the line, right? It'll start with one patriot, but there will be more patriots uh, to come. Uh, other allies and partners will uh, come out and, and help in, in a way to not sort of fan a broader conflagration. But all across Washington, you see evidence that this war is actually spurring action on industrial strategy, industrial policy, filling up uh, munitions, uh, right? I mean, we, we find in, in uh, the, the budget measure extra money for munitions uh, and weapons and in industrial base, for example. How has this war sort of in a more fundamental manner changed Washington, uh, do you think? Well, let's begin with NATO. Uh, I think there's a much greater appreciation of why NATO needs to hang together that it's not just a matter of bullying countries to spend more money. They have decided they're going to spend more money anyway uh, because they are worried about Russia. Uh, and uh, I would argue NATO is probably more cohesive now than it's been in the last, I don't know, 20 years, perhaps. Uh, there's a widespread recognition of its importance. If you uh, simply exclude the 30 or so crazies that are essentially isolationists. Uh, so that's one major change, I think. Uh, another change is the fact that uh, the policy, make, policy community has come to recognize that you can't just focus on China, that uh, in a sense, we now have to look in two directions again, uh, very much the way we had to do in World War II, and that the Russian problem, the Russian challenge may not be going away for some time. In fact, if you look at what Putin's doing, building uh, trenches and tank traps and all that in, in the parts of Ukraine that he still controls, which is less than 50 percent, by the way, right now, uh, it looks like he's digging in for a World War II situation. And as I mentioned last week, the Russians have the ability to reconstitute. So NATO and, and, and Europe are firmly in uh, policymakers' minds uh, in a way that they just weren't uh, as recently as two or three years ago. So that's one major change. Uh, as you rightly said, um, there's a couple of billion dollars, I think, uh, a little over that in the NDAA uh, for munitions. There's a sense that you cannot simply... Uh, uh, assume that you will deliver the munitions in time, you know, this sort of in time delivery that we talked about for so long, but that wars are not necessarily going to last for a day, as Putin thought, or for six days, as the Israelis won in 67. But these things can go on. 
And if they do go on, there's a real problem with munitions. And so there's a recognition of that. There's also a recognition, uh, and you've seen this uh, with respect to China, that it's, it's not uh, simply the, the major systems that we have to worry about, or, or even uh, 5G, but we have to worry about everything that goes into the supply chain. And there is a virtual unanimous sentiment that the, the supply chain has to be protected. It has to be protected either uh, within the United States itself or, with, or uh, including reliable allies. That's a change as well. Uh, and so I think overall, the perception that national security is every bit as important as it ever was. And you see that with that huge increase that uh, the uh, NDAA provided and that the appropriations will provide uh, if the omnibus passes as Michael thinks it will and as I agree with, um, it tells you that the administration uh, and, and uh, which also had a, a much lower increase, but some increase, but and recognized all along that Congress would increase them, whatever they gave Congress, um, that there's a recognition that we have to keep spending money on national security, even if we are talking about $850 billion. Um, did, uh, and, and I uh, should have asked uh, Michael about this, but I'll ask uh, you the question to start uh, us off, uh, Dove. Um, right, I mean, Zelensky um, had a very targeted uh, message um, I thought it was a terrific uh, address. Um, I thought uh, it was uh, a damning indictment of Russia and Putin, while at the same time um, added that, uh, you know, uh, that, you know, he said that, you know, Ukrainians um, w will win because they've already freed themselves mentally from Russia and Putin. And he added, quote, Russians will stand a chance to be free only when they defeat the Kremlin in their minds, uh, which I thought was a, a tremendous line. There were a lot of great lines in, in, in the address. Ultimately, do you think that it changes uh, the political dynamic? I mean, the president making clear that we're going to support Ukraine uh, as long as it takes. Uh, we've heard a similar sort of rhetoric coming from our European allies. Uh, do you think that he changed any minds in Congress, given that there weren't as many Republicans in that hall as there could have been? Well, um, the proof of the pudding is going to be in the eating. One of the things that uh, you didn't just mention that I thought was extremely important in what he said was that we need tanks. We Ukrainians need tanks and we need aircraft and we can train quickly enough. As you know, one of the arguments right. that's made against sending armor to the Ukrainians is, oh, well, it'll take them so long to train. The answer is, from, from Mr. Zelensky, no, it's not gonna take us that long to train. And we've demonstrated how flexible we are and how creative we are. So one clear uh, measure of the success of his speech, and look, it was a great speech. Uh, he wasn't a Churchill. Um, I've written something that will hopefully will appear in the Hill tomorrow. And I basically said, look, his elocution wasn't great. His English wasn't great. He's not an, an, English, an orator in English like somebody who, uh, like Winston Churchill was when he spoke in December 41, but he gave the same message as Churchill. Churchill in December 41 said that a disease that begins in Europe will spread to the United States. And this was right after December 7th, after Pearl Harbor Day. He pretty much last night said the same exact thing. He said, look, right. we are fighting not just for Ukraine, we're fighting for the free world. And that is a major message. So again, the proof of the pudding will be 
Will we ship tanks? Will we ship more Patriots? Will we do it quickly enough? Uh, the 45 or so billion dollars that's supposed to go to Ukraine should last them uh, well into uh, 2023, probably as, as, as late as April, maybe even May, because that would be about 10 billion a month, give or take. They're gonna need more money. Will they get more money? He got the applause, he got the standing ovations. He's gotta get the money and the equipment. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Very briefly, uh, Michael, uh, did his uh, visit or his address change uh, any minds? I mean, I think Dove made a good point. You know, like, you know, you, you, if you give us tanks and fighters, we'll use them really well, too, and, and use them really uh, quickly. And even even made a joke with the president uh, as well as uh, with Congress. You know, I'm here and I'm thankful and I'm grateful, but I also want more. I just want you to guys uh, to do a lot more and we're going to need a lot more because they're expecting uh, a massive uh, assault uh, from the Russians. And the Russians have made clear to the American side that we will bear any price in order to win this uh, and, you know, talk about broader mobilizations in Russia uh, and, 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 and the like. Michael, did this, did this address change any minds as powerful as it was, as Dove said, uh, proof of the pudding is in the eating? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Look, I, I, I don't think it did. But I don't think that matters as much because I still think that uh, Ukraine has strong bipartisan support uh, in the House and Senate. There's going to be folks uh, in the House, especially on the Republican side, um, that are going to be opposed to this. And they, and they do it mostly because of their brand. I mean, these are, again, are folks that don't care about governing. And you saw some very disrespectful behavior uh, yesterday by Lauren Go Boebert and Matt Gates, uh, who would not applaud. Uh, for um, the, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, and also, um, frankly, Bobert would sit down when everybody was standing up. Uh, so, and you know, their, their Twitter feed was full of all hateful nonsense, including uh, Donald Trump's son, uh, Don Jr., tweeted all kinds of hateful nonsense against Zelensky, yesterday, calling him an ungrateful welfare queen, which, of course, is anything but but the case. Um, and uh, Zelensky was extremely gracious and extremely grateful uh, for the investment that we're making. And I think he used the right word, right? Because you know this. This pertains to our freedom as well. And, right. I, and I was disappointed that out of 213 House Republicans, only 86 uh, showed up into the chamber last night uh, for the speech. But uh, the, the ones I talked to who are the national security leaders in the House uh, are going to continue to be supportive. And I, like I said before, they're going to you know, have to placate the right by putting more scrutiny on it, more accountability. And again, uh, what, what I've been told by some of the members from the classified briefings, obviously can't say it was in it, but that they were... Um, alarmed uh, to learn about what some of the non-defense money was going to. Uh, so I think, again, the non-defense aid will be more under scrutiny than the defense aid next year. Uh, Jim, uh, you've been very uh, patient. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how the war uh, has changed uh, Europe uh, and Europeans. You know, Dove uh, mentioned, uh, you know, that the change has been tectonic on both sides of the Atlantic. I know that, uh, you know, NATO is uh, in the process of expanding uh, and some concerns uh, there as well about whether or not, uh, you know, the, the Finns in particular have said, hey, we thought this would have gone a lot uh, more, more quickly at this point. Um, talk to us a little bit about how Europe has fundamentally changed. Uh, and then the response uh, to some on the Republican side, Defense Secretary Esper among them, uh, that Europe is actually not bearing the burden, right? Resuscitating a burden sharing argument uh, at a time when actually Europeans are struggling with higher energy costs. Uh, you know, they are providing systems, uh, but they don't have that many systems on hand, uh, in part because we roped them for 20 years into two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that were mismanaged. 
and cost them enormous amounts of resources. I mean, it was expensive for us, but if you imagine a country like Denmark or Belgium, an enormous amount of modernization money was consumed on urgent requirements to, to support troops in two places of the world that have not exactly borne positive dividends. So, you know, what's, what's, this, what's the tectonic nature of the change uh, over the past year and sort of the response that the Europeans are just not, you know, doing enough ultimately? Well, let me start off first about uh, Mark Esper, just to make the point that what he said just drives me crazy. And if I could be profane on your show, uh, I would be very profane right now, but I'll behave myself and just say that Mark Esper doesn't know what he's talking about. And that's not surprising because my experience with so many political appointees uh, in the Pentagon when it came to Europe and NATO is they absolutely didn't know the substance of Europe and NATO. Uh, and there was inherent with a lot of them this, this anti-Europe bias so that no matter what was said or done by Europe, it was always wrong. Uh, and they always use comparisons and metrics that were apples and oranges because they're, they are naive and because they just don't understand things. And they don't care either because they're there to talk about other things, other parts of the world or the U.S. military structure. As far as Europe and NATO is concerned, for decades and decades, that's been a sideshow. I was there from 1990 all the way up to today. I have seen it. And I will tell you that Mark Esper should know better. But at the same time, I'm not surprised that came out of his mouth and he should be ashamed of himself, quite frankly. But let me stop there and instead move over to your, your question about the tectonic changes or fundamental changes in Europe caused by the war. And what I would say is that I wouldn't classify them as tectonic or fundamental changes. Just for sure, there have been changes in terms of, of number one, and Dove talked about this, changes in terms of how... Um, nations now, allies, have, have been reminded about what NATO is there to do. And they have been reminded what it's like uh, to have a tyrant on, the, on that continent. Uh, and they have been reminded about the brutalities of war and how that brutality doesn't respect national boundaries. That brutality and, and also the, uh, the hardship that comes with warfare, such as we're seeing, um, will spread across that continent. And they, and as you pointed out, uh, Vago, the Europeans are now seeing that they're they're under the uh, the pressure of energy, et cetera, et cetera. You laid all that out. So, so what has changed, I think, is more of a reminder of what it's like to live on a continent at war. Number one, number two, in terms of what they're providing, and and we could go on forever, but I won't. There are a lot of things that you can't put your hand on and count. 50 tanks or 100 uh, HIMARS or whatever it might be in terms of contributions. In fact, the Europeans are bearing a huge load on them. And this to the point where I'm worried that we could see some of the uh, fatigue uh, that might come creeping into European society from undergoing the, the hardships that can be brought on by this war. Uh, and so um, I, I think to make the point, as Esper did, that the Europeans aren't doing enough, they're sure we want the Germans to do more in terms of providing uh, tanks, particularly Leopard 2s. We want uh, more uh, West European nations to empty out uh, some of their arsenal and to keep that flow going. Yeah, we, we, we want that. But, but if, you, if you did a count, a metric count, you'll see that a lot of nations have done a lot in terms of even the hardware as well as training that has been done to support Ukraine. So, so, but, but back to your fundamental point. Well, and, and then so, there's the finance, uh, the financial aid, the economic aid, 
uh, you know, right. food deliveries, ex- absorbing, um, you know, almost 10 million uh, refugees uh, from uh, Ukraine, repairing equipment forward uh, for them are things that all of our NATO allies and partners are doing, yep. particularly in the East. Um, and then there's the cost of energy. I mean, you know, it's great that we're sending energy there, but they're paying top dollar. Uh, which is sort of annoying them a little bit. That's right. Uh, and, that we're and, not getting a break on, on energy costs that are absolutely devastating. No, that's absolutely right. And just a, a couple more points. I don't want to take up the whole broadcast, but <laughs> this point is that, uh, you know, if, uh, if, you, if you look at the kinds of things like refugee flows, the refugee flows coming out of, of, out of uh, Ukraine, going to Poland, going to other places, uh, that's adding a lot of domestic pressure politically, as well as, uh, a burden on the nations to support the refugees that are that are living there. I know many people in across Europe that are colleagues of mine who have Ukraine refugees living with them now. Um, there's a lot of things happening there that the Americans don't see because we're thousands of miles away, and the Congress doesn't see because they live in that. I, I won't be profane, but they live in that bubble that they live in on Capitol Hill. Uh, so, uh, so that so that's important point. But 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 the last point though, Bago, I promise, is that. Um, there are still things that haven't changed. There's still fissures uh, in Europe, uh, north, south, east, west, that we could talk about. There's, there's, uh, there's Turkey as well as Hungary that go their own way. Uh, France and uh, Macron, you know, uh, they've got their eye also on how does this impact Europe in terms of being a, being a more independent Europe that's not dependent on the United States. This has been a reminder that, in fact, right now they are very dependent on the United States. And if they want to lessen their dependency, which is fine by us, they've got a lot of work to do to develop that military capability. And they're going through the EU to do that. And I understand why. And I salute that. But I don't think it's going to produce a lot certainly in the short to medium term. So, so just the bottom line here is that there are changes happening in Europe. Nations are spending more money on defense. There are these reminders about the importance of national defense and NATO and the relationship with the United States. So there are these, those kinds of changes, uh, but they're not fundamental. And you know what? They could change back too in a few years once Ukraine settles out and they, they begin to resort back to this idea that maybe the U.S., they need to keep their arms linked from the U.S., et cetera. That's always in the air. But right now, uh, there's been a reminder how important it is to be with us, how important NATO is, how important national security is, how evil tyranny is, and their role in fighting that tyranny. So, uh, but, but that can also fade away with time. So fundamental change, uh, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't call it that, but there is a uptick, at least in the reminders about the fundamentals of living in Europe. Let me uh, let me ask you uh, one one more question. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, as uh, Zelensky was in Washington giving his uh, powerful address, was um, r- raising what some uh, see as somewhat, you know, a continuation of um, uh, difficult or problematic themes, or for some contradictory. I don't think they're nearly as contradictory as they seem. Uh, his point was NATO is still at the core and NATO is still at the center of European security, but we also as Europeans just have to do more so that we're not blindly relying on NATO uh, right. nor on the United States. Um, right. There is no way that this message was not coordinated, by the way, uh, uh, with Washington, given uh, the number of days that the president, the two presidents spent together recently in Washington. Um, his whole point is we as Europeans have to get our act together. Uh, 
Um, on right. some fronts, uh, the act is getting together, right? Rheinmetall bought a Spanish ammunition maker. They're gearing up to produce more ammunition. Indeed, the Germans are manufacturing ammunition for Britain, uh, which has uh, depleted its stocks uh, to support uh, Ukraine. I would also point out uh, Admiral Rob Bauer, uh, the Dutch admiral who's the chairman of the NATO uh, military committee, uh, as he said in the Halifax International Security Forum, just a, you know one of one of the true great uh, gatherings uh, of the of the year. Uh, Reagan being uh, one of the other ones from a security standpoint, much more America focused. You know, Admiral Bauer made clear that hey, Europe is de- devoting tremendous, you know, donating tremendous amounts of equipment for magazines that are depleted. More broadly, is Macron's message going to actually move a European investment needle? Um, uh, you know, ultimately, I mean, is is his rhetoric going to be impactful and in five years change sort of the burden sharing dynamic, do you think? Or or is it just going to be seen as the French trying to lead and annoy people in the in the process uh, as, you know, unfair as as that is? The answer is yes to both. <laughs> you know, that, that that has been the consistent French theme forever. Uh, it was a little more biting uh, 15 years ago about when they were beginning to develop what has become the European uh, security uh, complex that they built within the EU. As that was first starting, it was really um, very political. And I'm afraid Washington and Paris threw mud at each other about this whole idea. But it's evolved to a it's evolved to a place where um, Europe and then Macron is saying kind of what we've been saying, which is Europe has got to do more, number one. Number two, you can't you can't hide behind the U.S. or be dependent on the U.S. Uh, or assume the U.S. is always going to be there under every military contingency. You need to not only do more for NATO, you got to do more for yourself to handle those times when the U.S. isn't involved, like if we're in the Pacific, for instance. So uh, so I think that's not just Macron, but most of Europe and NATO, we, we all agree that, that Europe needs to do more along those lines. So um, a lot of times when Macron says, says these things, the timing isn't so great. Uh, and, um, and because particularly uh, that message, it resonates, it has a strange bounce in Washington. It always has a strange bounce. On the one hand, we want them to do more, et cetera, et cetera, but there's a lot of people who interpret that as also the French particularly, or Europe poking us in the eye, um, because that's the way it was you know, 30 years ago, and that has still got some resonance in Washington. But the, the bottom line is this, you know, five years from now, I do believe uh, Europe and the EU, which is their main instrument here, is going. There will be doing a little bit more in terms of building a European capability, both industrial within Europe, which is important here, um, uh, and also in terms of capability. But I don't think it's going to move as fast as we want it to move. I don't think it's going to move in all the areas where it might need to move. Uh, and so I think we will continually be unhappy with the pace and with the priorities I think Europe is going to put things. But at the end of the day, it can't just be the EU. It's got to be nations themselves that put more money into defense and buy more capability with that capability being shaped by what NATO says it needs that nation to be able to produce. Uh, and so I think what's going to move that needle is what we are seeing in, in Ukraine right now. The horror, the war crimes, uh, these, these, the way the Russian soldiers themselves have been acting in Ukraine under orders or not. Uh, we are seeing horrors coming out of Ukraine and we will see them through the winter into the next year. That's what moves needles. And uh, that's what we've got to see happen. So the next five years, we have better see that needle move, but it won't be because of Macron. 
Um, uh, let me just bring you uh, briefly in, right? Uh, Jim had a very powerful uh, indictment uh, uh, aimed uh, partly at the uh, former uh, Defense Secretary Esper. Uh, from, from your uh, perspective, uh, what is it that people are getting wrong about how the Europeans and what the Europeans are doing and the costs Europeans are bearing that as usual in our traditional American way, we have a tendency of actually not recognizing, right? We, we, we're a much wealthier country um, you know, when they focus on building reinforced roads to move tanks, uh, that's a that's a defense cost, actually, uh, in a sense, and how they calculate that. Whereas, we, you know, we look at it purely as the number of tanks and aircraft that are uh, being, you know, and, and, and rounds that are being bought. What, what is it uh, that you think uh, folks here who are so critical and raise the burden sharing argument are missing? And Patrick, thank you for being uh, patient, but we're going to have a very a deep discussion on Asia that uh, you're going to lead us on in a moment. Uh, go ahead, Dove. In 1981, one of the very first things I did in the Reagan administration was negotiate a host nation support agreement with Germany. That costs money. Uh, and it's been going on for a long, long time in a lot of ways. All the bases we have in Europe, all the support we get that you don't indeed measure just in dollars and cents the way uh, one normally does those sorts of measures. But let me give two examples to flesh out what Jim just said. I'm speaking to leading Swedes this morning who told me that just the other day, Sweden was on the verge of having to ration energy because they were so they were pressed so badly by what Russia has been doing. And they had to import uh, energy at higher prices in order just to avoid rationing. We're not dealing with rationing in this country. The closest that came was in 73 with the long lines of cars at gas stations. So they're putting up with that. And I think that's a, a very important factor to bear in mind. And then again, look at the UK. They've given billions. I think it's seven billion or something by now. Maybe not as much as us, but second most to us. You know, the new prime minister, he's got a nurse's strike on his hands. He's got massive inflation on his hands, twice as high as ours. And you, nevertheless, they're still committed to helping the Ukrainians. So I think these are just two very specific examples to uh, buttress what Jim just said. Those folks across the pond, whether it's on the continent or Britain, are doing what they can with far more limited uh, capabilities and far more limited resources than this country has. Uh, I should add also uh, rail uh, is uh, another, you know, in a postal uh, outage uh, as well, uh, contributing to those challenges. And yet the UK uh, time and again has actually led uh, by sending uh, air, uh, uh, for example, Star Streak, we follow with Stinger. They send Enlaw, we follow with Javelin. Uh, and now aircraft uh, that have been sent over that hopefully uh, sets the tone. Uh, HIMARS was the same thing, GMLRS, and then, and then we followed uh, indeed. Um, Patrick, you've been extremely uh, patient. Uh, um, and I want to take some time about how this war uh, over the course of the year has actually uh, had dramatic changes uh, across Asia. Um, Russia is also a Pacific power. Uh, it is working more closely in partnership. Uh, even during this crisis, uh, Russia is working more closely uh, with the Chinese uh, to try to project force in the Pacific. Um, some of it aimed at us, some of it aimed at our allies and partners in the region, uh, nations that they mutually want to try to intimidate, Japan among them. Uh, from your standpoint, what have been the biggest 
implications across Asia of this European war uh, and all of its facets and what it tells us about um, the, the more permanent changes regionally that have happened as a consequence. Well, I don't know about permanent, but uh, no doubt the Russian war is the story of the year. And it reminds us that big power competition may not be the only security challenge, but it is the overriding security challenge. And if you're in the Indo-Pacific, it's not just China's newfound power and its gray zone coercion, its bid for technological supremacy, but it's the fact that war itself is thinkable, including in the Indo-Pacific. And that global order, as an extension, is up for grabs. It's changing and it's up for grabs. So far from being permanent, uh, everything is very temporary unless you fight for it and try to build a coalition around a rules-based system that you want to preserve. And that's what's happening. I think the first order of business has clearly been deter war over Taiwan, that this uh, timeline for potential conflict over Taiwan uh, has has moved up. Um, and so you see literally in the pictures today out of Taiwan, uh, ordinary uh, Taiwan um, youth basically being trained in small arms, women with bazookas. Um, there are billions of dollars more now for the anti-access kind of asymmetric arms that Taiwan needs to deter China from using force, whether it's for a blockade or for an attack. Um, you also just centrally see that the alliance transformation that's going on is not just in Europe, but it is very much in the Indo-Pacific. So uh, headline is, of course, Japan's new national defense strategy, including counterstrike weapons that are being uh, denounced, by the way, by Moscow as unbridled militarization. They're saying that at the very moment when they're continuing this protracted war against a neighbor, Ukraine. Um, Korea, uh, under President Yoon, pursuing strong defenses, including kill chain defenses that will allow even preemptive attack on, on North Korea. And the announcement this week that South Korea and the United States will continue with 20 major exercises next year, including full eagle, including an amphibious invasion. These are the exercises that were largely suspended back in 2019. Um, uh, you see in Australia, the pursuit of uh, AUKUS, of a, of a nuclear powered sub, but also the advanced technology, the idea of expanding the Five Eyes intelligence cooperation uh, with other like-minded countries like Japan, with Europeans. Um, you've seen the Philippines now this week talking about beefing up their defenses in the West Philippine Sea because of revelations that the Chinese have begun building on unoccupied um, territory in the South China Sea. Um, you see the uh, Indonesians announcing that they're going to continue with the Super Garuda Shield, which basically takes a small maritime exercise and has beefed it up into 13 countries that are participating, again, around the Natuna Islands in the South China Sea. You see the quadrilateral security dialogue solidifying, even while India and China are continuing to have border skirmishes, including in places that we thought were free from skirmishes. And that's largely because the Chinese have enacted new domestic laws that make them more aggressive in trying to defend their borders in their periphery. All of this is happening in terms of transformation of the alliances uh, in the Indo-Pacific. And I think the bottom line here, and it was told to me this week by a very senior official out of the Indo-Pacific, that if we let might makes right, um, you know, the order will be, will, will fall apart. We have to work on might. And I think that's what US and its allies and partners are working on. They're working on might to have a favorable balance of power and to preserve order. And this rebalance is not just in the Indo-Pacific. It's not just a pivot to the Indo-Pacific. It's a global rebalancing in which Europe and Asia Pacific are coming together and seeing that their interests 
overlap. Let's uh, briefly go to our uh, Chinese friends uh, and uh, some of the messaging we heard, right? I mean, it was a very hard uh, uh, messaging that was very, very hard through the COVID pandemic. Uh, a lot of bullying of allies and partners, that rhetoric got sharper and harder uh, as Xi Jinping uh, was uh, competing for his uh, third term uh, and uh, and has since uh, sidelined uh, anybody but hardliners from his uh, team. Um, but no sooner was that finished that uh, it almost a, a switch went off in Beijing's head and said, hey, wait a minute, maybe we're making our situation worse. Let's start a little bit of a charm offensive around the world, uh, given how we appear to be offending everybody uh, in, in this in this process. What is it that we saw over the past year in China's behavior um, that suggests to us how they might be behaving uh, going forward and whether or not the new uh, charm offensive um, is is ultimately going to work, right? People have made their measure of China at this point, largely, uh, whether you're German, whether you're French, whether you're American, Japanese, Australian, Thai, or anybody else. Um, I mean, does does anything sort of change? Well, there's no doubt that Xi's coronation, uh, third time at the helm, has gotten off to a rough start, and he's had to do a U-turn on the zero COVID policy. And so now he's gone to, you know, from zero COVID to maximum COVID, um, and has to weather the social storm that comes out of that. Um, the charm offensive, three overseas trips in three months after two years of being locked down at home in Beijing, Xi Jinping has tried to uh, make sure that his economy can keep going because this year, 2022, one of the historical facts that will be registered at the end of this year uh, is that this will be the lowest growth of rate uh, Growest, I'm sorry, this will be the lowest growth rate of the Chinese economy since Deng Xiaoping opened up China to the world. Um, and that has got to strike real fear into the legitimacy of the CCP, not to mention just the COVID and the zero COVID uh, protests that forced that U-turn. You're right, the charm offensive is is difficult. It's, it's not registering the kind of landing that I think Xi Jinping hopes. Um, and I see evidence of this in Foreign Minister Penny Wong's visit to, see, to meet with Wang Yi uh, in Beijing this week uh, as part of that charm offensive, trying to reduce the tensions over the fact that China has enacted essentially a boycott, a ban on buying beef and wine and lobster um, over uh, political differences with Australia. Um, they're going to try to ease some of those things because of the economy. But at the same time, uh, the reading in Canberra of that meeting is that there's not going to be a significant change in policy over the competition between Australia and, and China. And that's a real important test case for, for China. And it shows you that there are real limitations to how far she wants to go to uh, leverage that charm offensive into policy change. We don't see policy change. We don't see strategic direction change. We just see tactical moves on the part of Beijing right now because they're desperate. They have the societal uprisings, uh, and now they have uh, a really weak economy heading into 2023. They need to get these things under order, get through the COVID winter, try to restart the economy, and then figure out where they go from there. But in the meantime, um, China's very much on its heels and looking for uh, a, a sort of a calmer period with U.S. and yet not necessarily over Taiwan, not necessarily over the over the Taiwan over the South China Sea, not necessarily on the border with India. So it shows that there are real limitations of this charm offensive. They don't know which way to go. They they want to protect their interior security, but at the same time, uh, they're very worried 
uh, about uh, about the order uh, of the CCP and the in the basically the staying power of Xi Jinping, whether he survives this third term uh, and has a fourth. Um, let me. Uh, our time is uh, running uh, very short, and we're going to go into a bit of a uh, a lightning round in order uh, to uh, cover everything. But really quick, uh, Patrick, as everybody has focused uh, on COVID, on the Xi coronation, uh, Japan's defense strategy, uh, and certainly you know the Russia Ukraine war, uh, tensions have been increasing between India and China. Um, we had um, some more skirmishes uh, on uh, the contested uh, border. Um, is, is that kind of a sleeper story that uh, folks are not paying as much attention to as they need to? Yes and no. I mean, again, I think analysts are saying that the main cause of the continued skirmishes that we're reading about and that we're not reading about uh, are that earlier this year, China enacted uh, a stronger set of domestic laws. Um, that basically empower uh, law enforcement and the military on the borders to take uh, aggressive action. Um, and so that's what's happening. That's not necessarily a major power play to change the borders. Uh, it just shows you that China is doubling down on its peripheral security. I think the bigger, bigger problem here is that the distrust between Delhi and Beijing is growing. Um, and so, you know, you can talk about, and we haven't really talked about India not being willing to criticize Putin and uh, uh, Russia, but the reality is that the tension between India and China is growing, and that uh, bodes well for the Quad. It bodes well for India's cooperation in the Indo-Pacific. Even while it wants to be uh, strategically autonomous, it's going to play a bigger role in being a counterweight to China, and China has to worry about that. Dov, uh, you wanted to add something uh, on Chinese uh, workers? Yeah, because this time of year, a lot of the Chinese workers uh, who've been working in Southeast China and the big plants, the American plants, the European plants, they go home. And the problem is, uh, because of fear of COVID and she's lifting the COVID restrictions, they're going home early. They're scared because they're afraid it's going to spread. And Many of them have not been home for a couple of years, and it may well be that they're not going to come back anytime soon. And that's going to mean shortages of workers in American plants and in European plants. And it might mean plant closures. It's going to affect the degree to which uh, China gets revenues out of these plants. And it's going to further complicate Xi's headaches because he needs those plants as much as he can stand the West. He needs those plants to operate because they're a source of revenue. So it's not going to get any easier, as Patrick says, for Mr. Xi. And, and Vago, if I can just pile on there, because, I'm, you know, from a from a Chinese citizen perspective, there's real fear in the body politic right now. There, one hospital in Shanghai basically saying all of our workers are going to die. All of our patients are going to die. That was a message on WeChat that was then taken down. But that shows the fear that they've been building up with this anti-COVID, you know, zero COVID policy for so long. And now suddenly no blueprint, just go ahead and die, get it and die, uh, has got them very scared. And it's going to have a profound impact, in the, at least in the short term, on the economy and the society in China. 
Um, we uh, have a uh, couple of minutes left, and obviously uh, our first show of uh, the new year uh, is going to look at what are the, going to be the big issues uh, for uh, 2023 as opposed to a roundup as we're trying to do, obviously with one uh, gigantic story that has shaped, uh, uh, the, the reshaped the, the world uh, the way it has. Uh, Dove, uh, very briefly, we've got about two minutes left, so you get uh, the tough job of discussing a lot of stuff and discussing it quickly. Um, two nations in which America did spend $4 trillion. Uh, both uh, are coming unhinged, uh, in a sense, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, talk to us about what the key takeaways are from 2022 uh, that should shape how we think about them in 23. Well, obviously, the Taliban uh, now turning around and saying that no woman can go to university totally undermines what we've been saying for 20 years, and even more recently, that there had been gains in spite of the disaster that took place uh, in August 21 when we pulled out. Um, it's going to lead a lot of people to question these sorts of adventures again. And, and of course, in Iraq, there is now uh, a major concern about uh, corruption and bribery under the previous, the outgoing prime minister. Um, Iranian influence continues to grow. Uh, and so the worry, I think, is that the uh, isolationists will continue to point to Iraq and Afghanistan, and there are going to be hearings on Afghanistan. We know that that's been promised by the House Republicans. They're going to point to those and say, you know, it should be uh, uh, America first, or as the Irish would say, Sinn Féin, our, our, ourselves alone, which is a very, very dangerous policy at a time when Putin's not exactly going backward, nor is Mr. Xi, as we've just been hearing for the last hour. Uh, but I think that is the big worry uh, and the uh, that emerges from what's been going on in both of the countries that we spent 20 years fighting in, losing people, spending trillions of dollars, uh, and uh, with an outcome that uh, one just cannot anymore say was successful in any way. Um, and let me ask you one last question, a quick uh, wrap up uh, on uh, both uh, Israel and Iran, two very important stories and uh, stories that we've been covering over the course of the year, especially as Bibi Netanyahu uh, appears to have formed a government and is getting ready to take over. Well, in the case of Israel, uh, he's taken on these fascists, as we've talked about, uh, racists, fascists. Uh, the, the challenge is going to be for the United States. Uh, how do we respond if indeed these people who are taking over major roles in the defense ministries in the West Bank and so on uh, are actually going to be able to implement their policies? Because Traditionally, we've looked the other way with very, very few exceptions. Jim Baker, Secretary of State, was one of those. Um, what happens if there's a vote in the Security Council? Uh, my guess is if BB actually allows his, these people to implement what they want to implement, we're going to start abstaining. And that will be very bad for Israel, uh, particularly for its economy. Uh, so he's playing with fire. Uh, I think, uh, like many uh, Israelis who've been in and out of America, he thinks he understands this country. Uh, I think he's losing, uh, if he has not already lost, the vast majority of the American Jewish population who support Israel but don't support him. Uh, and uh, the Democratic Party, I think, is out the window for him. He's got a problem. He may not realize it because, uh, like Mr. Trump, he seems to be living in a bubble. And uh, Iran? As for Iran, uh, the demonstrations continue. We still haven't seen the Revolutionary Guard uh, get into it. In a They're still leaving the killing to the besiege, but there have been public hangings. They're doing whatever they can to deter people, and the deterrence isn't working. 
Uh, as I've said many times, I don't think they're going to bring down the government now. The analogy is much more to the revolution in Russia in 1905, which presaged by 12 years what ultimately happened with the fall of the czars. These uh, ayatollahs are on the way out, but it's going to take a while. And that's all the time uh, we have for today's uh, program and indeed for the year. Guys, thanks so very much for being such an important part of what we do. Really couldn't do it without uh, your support and a treat uh, every Friday uh, to have you guys on the program. Wishing you all and indeed wishing our entire audience a uh, very happy holidays, a very happy Hanukkah, uh, very uh, Merry Christmas, happy Kwanzaa, uh, and uh, wishing everybody a happy, healthy and prosperous uh, new year. Look forward to resuming our coverage uh, the first week uh, in uh, January. Uh, in the meantime, hope everybody has uh, terrific holidays and a wonderful uh, new year. Thanks so much.